Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to cover in this audio Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 23. I'm going to entitle this section, Paul's Plans to Visit Rome. Our context is this. In the first part of chapter 15, Paul exhorted the Romans to unity between Jew and Greek, between weak and strong. And then in the middle part of chapter 15, he talked about how he was apostle to the Gentiles. So you Jews don't be looking down on the Gentiles and you Gentiles be happy that you would not have gotten saved except for what the Jews did for you. And so now he's going to finish up chapter 15 and talk about his plans to visit Rome. So we start in verse 22 of chapter 15, Romans. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. Well, what is why? What is what prevented Paul from coming to see the Romans? We have to find that out by going to look at the previous verse. Paul says this in verse 21, Romans 15. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul is talking about his ministry to the Gentiles who have not been told about Jesus because they're living in darkness. And that is why he couldn't come to Rome, because he was busy evangelizing the Gentiles. I mean, he had gone everywhere. He had gone in Galatia. He had gone to the city in Antioch, Lystra, and Derbe, in Asia Minor, in um, on the west coast of Asia Minor. He had gone to Ephesus when he went over into Thrace, down into Macedonia, he went to Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, he went to Berea, then he went down to Achaia and Greece, he went to Corinth, and he also stopped by in Athens. So that's where he's been evangelizing, and he's been busy evangelizing to the Gentiles, and all of his work has prevented him from coming to the Romans. Paul wanted to go to unevangelized areas, and Rome was evangelized already, so that's why he hadn't gone to Rome. Somebody had already gotten there, so he was busy taking care of the unevangelized areas first, and since he had finished taking care of that, now he was going to go to Rome. But, of course, it was going to Rome on his way to Spain, which was also unevangelized. We go to verse 23 and 24 of Romans 15. But now I no longer have any work to do in these provinces, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Now, Paul says he no longer has any work. That means he's finished his evangelizing of all these areas where the gospel has not been proclaimed and Christ has not been named. He's finished, so now he can go see Rome on his way to Spain. Now, Paul says here, I hope to see you, Romans, when I pass through and to be assisted by you. Now, what does assisted mean? There's a couple of options. The first option is that Paul wanted to use the Roman church as a base of operations to evangelize Spain. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea. That study Bible makes its argument by saying that more than a quick stop was contemplated by Paul. He was going to stay in Rome for a while, because we see that word while at the end of verse 24. Once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Well, maybe. But the while could be a short while. And the commentator Hendrickson says that no, rather, it's that Paul wanted to be given housing and provisions for travel, and he was going to go on his way to Spain. Base of operations, what kind of base of operations at a time when there was no communication, no instant internet, no telephones? Base of operations, that sounds like modern missionary talk. No, Paul, and I think Hendrickson is exactly right here, Paul just wanted to be giving housing and provisions, help along the way. As, as Watchman Nee put it, he used a quote, and I forgot the verse he quoted from, but he, he used a, ver, a, 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 a quote from Paul in the manner of giving and receiving. And what that means is in the manner of giving, receiving hospitality. 
Let's look at some scriptures here about how the early church showed hospitality to traveling itinerant workers. Acts 15.3, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. This is Paul and Barnabas on the way to the to the Jerusalem Council, they had been sent on their way by the church at Antioch. That means they were given provision so they could make the journey. 1 Corinthians 16:6. And perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. He asked the Corinthians to send him on his way, find him a ship, give him a basket full of food. 2 Corinthians 1:16. And to go on to Macedonia with your help. And then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. That was Paul talking about his plans, which are complicated. At the end of the third journey, we won't go into that. But the point is, is that Paul was planning, at least, to go to Macedonia with the Corinthians' help. They were to assist him in his travel. Find him a traveling companion. Find him a passage on a, on a boat, a coastal boat run, running up from Corinth up to Thessalonica, whatever. Or maybe a, 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 a overland passage somehow. Titus 3.13, Paul says this to Titus, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so they will lack nothing. Now, I don't know who Zenos the lawyer was. doesn't matter. The point is, as Paul says to Titus, help them on, on their journey so they will lack nothing. So this idea of helping people travel was very common back then. It was not a salary. Paul didn't mind asking people to show hospitality. It was hospitality is what it was, not salary. So it is not technically true to say that Paul never asked for money. He did ask for travel assistance. However, we need to make some distinctions here. He never asked for a salary and never took one. There is a big difference between a salary and travel assistance. We need to make another distinction. He did take unsolicited offerings. For example, the church at Philippi sent him aid down at Thessalonica after he had left Philippi. So he, that was fine, but he didn't ask for those offerings. And another condition is... Paul did not ask for offerings when he was, he did not take offerings when he was preaching in front of a particular church, for example, at Philippi, for example, at Corinth. Paul pointed out to the Corinthians, I didn't take money from you, so quit criticizing me. One other financial note here, Paul did supplement the unsolicited offerings he got and the travel help that he got, he supplemented that by tent making, working with his hands on the side, like he only did that when he, had, when he had time to do that to settle down and set up a little tent-making operation. For example, when he was at Corinth, I think he was at Corinth for a year and a half, when he was traveling, he asked for travel assistance. Now, you can't go wrong if you are a someone in the ministry. You can't go wrong following the Apostle Paul's example. Oh, but we, that's just his example. Things are different now. Well, yeah, you can do that. I know Hudson Taylor followed Paul's example. He managed to evangelize China. Maybe you could, too, without sending out your fundraising letters and begging for money. I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I'm saying it does violate, it does, shall we say, not match the apostolic pattern. I've given money to people who request funds, but I don't like it. I don't like the fact that I request it. On the other hand, I would, probably wouldn't have given to them if I hadn't known about it. Nothing, so I guess there's nothing wrong with making yourself known. I mean, if you send out a missionary letter and you don't ever say, please send me money, but you just say, this is what we're doing, this is, the financial need we have, because everybody always has financial need, and somebody says, okay, I think I'll send, send money to them. I, you know, I'm not going to quibble over it, but I'll tell you what, in this time of financial scandal, it really would be nice if you didn't spend all your time begging for money. It doesn't look good, and Paul knew it didn't look good either. That's why he didn't do it. 
Now, Paul desired to go see the Romans. He's already said that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. For God, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, is my witness that I constantly mention you, you Romans, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you. So here he's he's repeating what he in chapter 15, what he said in, in chapter 1. I was prevented, I wanted to come to you, but I was prevented. In order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. So, Paul, how many times has he mentioned in that short little seven verses, I want to come, I'm eager to come, I want to see you. Paul says in verse 23, he's wanted to see them for years. So all during the years of his three missionary journeys, he's been thinking about Rome. It shows the church at Rome had been established for quite a while. Now, he says he wants to see the Romans on his way to Spain. It is a split of opinion. Scholars split on whether Paul ever actually made it to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain, but we don't know if he ever made it there or not. There's no proof that he did. It's unknown. Notice he says in verse 4, Paul does, that I hope to see you when I pass through. Now, I, last audio, I went into a good long spiel about the distinction between hope and wish. Hope is a confident expectation of the future, but now you can hope for something and confidently expect to have it happen and it not happen in reality. We know that because we know the future is not set by us humans. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But hope is stronger than wish. So when he says, I wish, if he'd have said, I wish to come to see you, he's thinking, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. But hope is, I'm planning on coming. And his words are very clear. He planned to come see to Rome. Romans 15, verses 25 through 26. Paul continues, right now I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. Now remember, Paul is in Corinth. He's writing to the Romans. He's in Corinth on the third journey. He was on his third journey at the end of it, getting ready to go back to Jerusalem to take the poor collection that he had collected from various churches to take the contribution back to the saints in Jerusalem. So he's traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. Now, here's a question. Why didn't Paul just send the money to Jerusalem without going himself? He could have said, all right, here, I've here, got the money. We're gonna, I'm going to send a deputation of fellow workers to send the money to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to go to Rome. Well, he, Paul doesn't say, but here's the NIV study Bible speculation, and I think it's quite reasonable. Paul wanted to present the gift to the Jerusalem saints personally. The gift needed interpretation. More than money, Paul wanted to give the Jerusalemites the Jerusalem brothers, he wanted to show them love and concern. Remember, this is a collection from predominantly Gentile churches given to the Jewish churches. And what is the big split, the big political, not political, but the big religious and ethnic split in the church was between Gentiles and Jews. And Paul just spent a lot of time in the book of Romans trying to paper over that difference. It's everywhere through the gospels, through the letter, excuse me, through the, through the um, letters in the New Testament this problem between Jew and Gentile. The problem was evident in, in Acts also. The relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles was especially thorny at the beginning of the church. 
And so Paul is constantly concerned about that. He wants to make sure that the Jews and the Gentiles get along. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The apostle was in hopes that this liberal contribution sent by the Gentile Christians who had been converted by St. Paul's ministry would engage the affections of the Jewish Christians who had been much prejudiced against the reception of the Gentiles into the church without being previously obliged to submit to the yoke of the law. See, that's the whole problem is the law. The Gentiles don't keep the law, therefore we Jews can't accept them. Clark continues, he wished to establish, Paul wished to establish a coalition between the converted Jews and Gentiles being sensible of its great importance to the spread of the gospel. Sounds like Paul is a coalition builder. He's a politician. Excuse me for slandering his name. So Paul says in verse 26, Romans 16, 15, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now Macedonia, that would include Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Achaia would include Corinth. He had encouraged these churches to collect money for the saints. We read about it also in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. Paul tells the Corinthians, now about the collection for the saints. This is the same collection. The, the poor, it's called the, the poor offering, I guess you call it. Sometimes it's called the four-province offering. And I think that's because from the province of Achaia, from the province of Macedonia, from the province of Asia Minor, and from the province of Galatia. The Galatian churches we had mentioned, he didn't mention here, but that would be Lystra, Derby, and Pisidian Antioch. But at any rate, this collection of the saints, he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 16, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. That would be Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, and Derby. On the first day of the week, each of you used to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collections will need to be made when I come. Have the money ready, boys. I'm going to come pick it up. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. That's because letters would, would show who it's coming from and why it's coming, and then it would be more than one brother carrying the money so that nobody will accuse that brother of stealing the mother money and also so that the brother might not actually steal the money. And then verse 4, Paul says, if it is suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. As it turns out, Paul did go with the brothers to Jerusalem with that money. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, the offering is mentioned again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. And notice this is wealth of their generosity to the Jerusalem saints, not to Paul. Paul had no trouble raising money for other people. It was he never raised money for himself. Appearances do matter in preaching the gospel. Second Corinthians eight nineteen. And not only that, but he, this is Titus, was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gift that is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Eagerness to help the Jews in Jerusalem. Second Corinthians nine, twelve through thirteen. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with others through the proof provided by this service. The they there that are going to be very happy is the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish saints who get the money. Now, a question might arise is why are they poor? Why are the saints in Jerusalem poor? Paul says in Romans 15, this collection he's taken up is for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say that every saint in Jerusalem was poor. That would be unlikely, but he says the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. There was obviously enough poor people amongst the saints in Jerusalem that Paul had to take up a, a collection from all over the known Roman world. 
So there must have been a lot of poor saints in Jerusalem. And the question is, is why? Well, it could have been because of the famous famine in the time of Claudius. That famine had already caused the saints at Antioch to send a contribution down to the Jewish saints earlier. This is before the missionary journeys had begun. And saints at Antioch, we read about this in Acts. I forgot, I don't have the quote in front of me, but there was a, that's the first poor relief for the Jerusalem saints. And that was during the time of Claudius. This is several years later, but the famine might have created ongoing poverty conditions. It could be because of current persecution. The book of Hebrews talks of the Jewish Christians having their goods despoiled. They're thrown in jail. Their goods are taken away from them, as you recall. Hebrews chapter 11. could be because of persecution that they're poor. John Gill has an interesting idea. It could be because they had thrown all their money into a common fund to protect the Christians at Pentecost. If you recall, they all kept their their goods in common at Pentecost, which was an unusual situation. They had a bunch of people away from home, got converted all of a sudden. So it was a one-off situation, but nonetheless, they put all that money in the common fund, and they helped all those those sojourning Jews, and now they were out of money. Because, let's face it, you put something in common, you're going to run out of money. This is an interesting idea for those who think that communal ownership, communal ownership of goods is good for normal situations. It is not good because it takes away the incentive to work and to provide to the common fund, and it increases the incentive to freeload off the common fund, and it's just human nature to eat up goods that are kept in common. You can look at all these early, what the Onita experiment, all these er, uh, experiment, all these early American colonial experiments at communal ownership. Of course, they also have their wives in common too, some of them, but it never works. Believe me, it just never works. Maybe that's what caused them to be poor. I don't know. We go to Romans 15, verse 27. Paul continues, yes, they were pleased, they being the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, the Gentile churches. They were pleased and indeed are indebted to them, to them being the Jerusalem saints, the Jewish Jerusalem saints. Yes, the churches of Macedonia and Achaia were pleased, indeed are indebted to the, to the Jerusalem saints. For if the Gentiles have shared in their, the Jewish Christians' spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs. And what Paul is trying to say here, we're all in this together, and he's trying to give a reason why the Gentiles ought to be thankful to the Jews. Now again, Gentiles might not be predisposed to help the Jews because the Jews were persecuting the church. But it wasn't the Jewish Christians that were persecuting the church. In other words, don't paint with too broad a brush. Don't throw people into too broad a category. Not all Jews were hostile to the gospel. There were some Jews that believed in the gospel. We need to take care of them. Now, what benefits, what spiritual benefits had the Jews given to the Gentiles? Paul says in verse 27, For the Gentiles have shared in their, the Jews, spiritual benefits. How have the Gentiles shared in the Jews' spiritual benefits? Well, as the NIV Study Bible succinctly summarizes it, because of Christ in the gospel. Jesus was Jewish. He was born in the Jewish nation, and then the gospel came from Jesus. Well, there's your answer right there. Let's look at the Old Testament's witness to God, how the Jews gave spiritual benefits to the world. Romans 3, 1 through 2. So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. All right, so the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied of Jesus, they came from the Jews. Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. God adopted the nation of Israel into his, as his son. The glory, they were given special prom 
preeminence or glory amongst all the nations, the covenants, the famous Abrahamic covenant, the, Nova, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai with Moses, the temple service, the promises, those Abrahamic promises, the ancestors are theirs, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from them by physical descent came the Messiah, who is God over all and praised forever. Amen. So Paul's already talked about the benefits the Jews have given to the Gentiles. This is in Romans 9, several chapters previous. And he's reminding the Gentiles again, hey, these Jews, it wasn't for them. You wouldn't be saved. You'd be going to hell, folks. Romans 15, 8 through 9, For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth. The Messiah became a servant of the Jews, in other words, on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. And so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing psalms to your name. So God had mercy to the Jews. Jesus came a servant, became a servant to the Jews so that, the, that what would flow from that would be praise among the Gentiles for God's glory. So you see, God's ministry to the world was for Jews and Gentiles. They were both, that ministry was integrally and intimately tied together. You can't say the Jews are saved and leave the Gentiles out. And you can't say the Gentiles are saved and leave the Jews out. John 4.22, this is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. That's Jesus, the number one Jew, saying that. Salvation is from the Jews. All right, so Paul is telling the Romans, hey, take care of them materially. They helped you out spiritually. You take care of them materially. Paul also said this in 1 Corinthians 9.11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? Here he was not talking about Jews and Gentiles. He was talking about him personally. I've given you spiritual benefits. Is it too much if you give me some material benefits? Now, he was not really asking for money here because he didn't take the money. But he was establishing an abstract right of of the apostles to receive money. And he mentions other people, other apostles. So, if you, if, you know, if somebody helps you out spiritually, it's sort of a natural thing. If they need money, give them money. I mean, my gosh, spiritual things are worth more than money. But they got to have money. They got to eat just like you do. Their bodies function the same way. Their bodies chew up food and digest food, and they have to be replenished with food, and that takes money. So help them out. So anyway, all of this fits the theme of Romans, which is the Jews have not been cast off. There is still a remnant, even though many people and many Jews don't believe now. They're still important. So you would give them, and the remnant is over there in Jerusalem. So let's give them some money. Romans 28. Romans 15, verses 28 and 29, Paul continues, So when I have finished this, this Jerusalem collection, and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, Paul determined he wanted to, I will visit you. Well, he got back to Rome, but it was not exactly like he'd planned. After he took the Jerusalem collection back to Jerusalem, he got arrested and it's a long story, but he got sent back to Rome on a ship as a prisoner. We, that's in Acts 21 through 28. Great story. Now, as I said earlier, we don't know whether Paul made it to Spain or not. There is some evidence from First Clement 5.7. That's early church father, not scriptural. And that passage states that Paul made it to the western extremes of the Roman Empire. So maybe, you know, maybe Clement was right. I don't know. But Gill says it's not probable that he went to Spain. Who knows? But Paul says, this is what he does know in verse 29, I know that when I come to you, we don't know whether Paul made it to Spain, but Paul knew that when he came to Rome, he will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Here's some options. It could mean that Paul was very confident in his ability to bless those whom he ministered to. 
So it would read like this. I will come to fill you up with the fullness of all the blessings of Christ. That's one option. Another option is, as Paul should find the Romans full of the blessings of Christ when he got there. I will come and I will see all the fullness of the blessings of Christ that Jesus has already given you. When I get there, I'm going to see that. So in other words, it's not clear what the, when the time is, the timing of the delivery of the fullness of the blessing of Christ to the Romans is. We don't know the timing of it, but we do know the result is that every blessing in Christ has come to the Romans. Romans 15, verse 30. Now I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Now notice that Paul is appealing to the Roman brothers. Paul wasn't such a big shot that he couldn't ask for prayer for himself. Ask for prayer. You need it. People are always asking me for prayer, and I'm always asking other people for prayer. I just finished getting on a WeChat prayer group with five friends of mine. Uh, asking for prayer because this doctor in Beijing is getting ready to call me. He's interested in the gospel. Well, I'm not going to just go talk to this doctor without praying about it first, not only me personally and not only my wife, but also my friends that know how to pray. Appeal to, you know, appeal for prayer. That's a good thing to do. That's the, that's the apostolic example of Paul. Appeal for prayer. I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. So Paul doesn't just ask for prayers. He asks for fervent prayers. Now, let me give you some other translations of that word, fervent. I'm using, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible. It says fervent prayers. The NIV says, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Nothing easy about being an apostle. It's nothing easy about being a Christian, actually. Life is a struggle. We need others praying for us. So Paul says, join me in my struggle. The ESV says, strive together with me in your prayers. The Greek word for strive together is sunagonidzathai, sunagonidzathai, which you can't really see that, but if you look at the transliteration of the Greek word there, you'll see right in the middle of it these letters in English, A-G-O-N-I-Z-E, agonize, agonize with me in prayer. Paul wasn't asking for half-hearted prayer. He was asking for fervent prayer. Now, what's he asking for prayer about? Well, Paul was worried about the reception he was going to get from the Jews in Jerusalem, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. Not only believe, believing Jews, what are they going to say about the money? I guess he's probably not too worried about that because, you know, people bringing money, not like they're going to criticize them too much. But it's the unbelieving Jews he was really worried about because they might harm him. As a matter of fact, they did. They tried to kill him. They tried to ambush him. They, they accused him falsely before a Roman commander, then before a Roman tribunal in Caesarea, and they made him get held up in jail for two years in Caesarea while they had trials against him. They, uh, they treated him terribly. So Paul had good reason to ask for fervent prayers because he was heading into a hornet's nest. He was heading into a life-threatening situation. Now Paul says that he appeals through, uh, through Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the agency by which he appeals to them. He's the agency while we do any prayer or anything that we do, actually. And Paul also appeals through the love of the Spirit. That's a little bit ambiguous. What can that mean? It could mean the love of the Spirit, through the love of the Spirit, which causes the, us to love the Father and the Son shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. John Gill says that. Adam Clark says that's what it means. In other words, the love of the Spirit is going to, to the love that the Spirit puts, puts for God 
in the hearts of the Romans is going to eventuate in the Romans sending up fervent prayers to to God for Paul. Well, I don't know. That seems a little bit stretching it. Here's another Here's another option, John Gill, the love the Holy Spirit had for Christians. I appeal to you through the love of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves us. And so, since the Holy Spirit causes you Romans to love me, Paul, because of that love, I want you to pray for me. I think that makes a little more sense, to be honest. I think it's the love of the, of the Holy Spirit had for Christians rather than the love the Christians had for the Father and the Son. Another option, which I don't believe it is, is appeal through you for the love of the Spirit means the love that you have for the Holy Spirit. Nah, normally that's strange language to say that, so we usually don't say we love the Holy Spirit. Maybe we should. We say we love the Son, we love the Father. We never say we love the Holy Spirit, but He is part of the Trinity, you know. He's the third person. Maybe we ought to love the Holy Spirit, too. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. I think he means the love the Holy Spirit had for Christians because of that love. I appeal through the love that the Holy Spirit has given you, Romans, for me, and because you love me, pray for me fervently. Romans 15, verses 31 through 33. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. That's the first prayer. Second prayer request. That the gift I am bringing to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Second prayer request. Third prayer request, verse 32. And that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. That's the third prayer request. The God of peace be with all of you. Amen. The NIV Study Bible says that Paul had been warned before about needing to be rescued from the unbelievers, and they cite Acts 20, verse 22 through 23. The problem with that is, is this is after Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, from the letter to the Romans from Corinth. This was after he had left Corinth and had ended up in Ephesus, and he was speaking to the, ended up in Malaysia, talking to the Ephesian elders at Malaysia, and he says this, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in town after town the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Well, maybe he's referring back to some other warnings he had before he was in Corinth writing to the Romans. I don't know. But Paul, at some point, knew full well that he was heading for trouble in Rome. And he, he was obviously aware of it here as he was writing to the Romans. Prayer request number one. Let me rescue, be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. These were the same Jews who had murdered Jesus and had murdered James, the apostle, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. These are the same Jews that had persecuted the church so badly that it was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, as we read in Acts 8. We also read of the Jews' persecu persecu the Jews attitude of persecution in 1 Thessalonians 2:14 through 16 for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. In other words, Jewish Christians in Judea suffered from the Jews. And likewise, you Jewish believers in Thessalonica are, being, are suffering from the Jews in Thessalonica. These Jews who, in verse 15, 1 Thessalonians 2, these Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, persecuted Paul and his co-workers, they displease God and are hostile to everyone hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins, and wrath is overtaking them at last. So Paul knew doggone well what he was facing when he went back to Jerusalem, and I don't think we really have a feel for that when we read the words. We need to realize that this was a dangerous thing he was getting ready to do. Acts 21, verse 27, we don't need to go into all the Jewish machinations once Paul got that back to Jerusalem, but here's an example in verse 27 of Acts 21. 
As the seven days were about to end, the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple complex, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him. And that was the beginning of Paul's troubles. Well, let's see if Paul's three prayers were, were answered in the affirmative. Actually, they were. He, now, he was attacked and arrested as soon as he got to Jerusalem, but the first prayer was that I be rescued from the Jews. He was rescued from the Jews by Lysias, the Roman commander. They tried to kill him, and he was rescued. He was put into protective custody there in the tower prison there, and so that first prayer was answered, even though he it wasn't answered. He wasn't rescued from prison, but he was rescued from death, so the prayer was answered. The second prayer was that the gift would be acceptable to the Jerusalem saints. That prayer was answered in the affirmative. Acts 21, verse 17, we read this. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. Well, that's not surprising. I'm surprised that Paul would ask that. Why would he think that the Jews in Jerusalem might not accept his offering? I mean, money? How many people look a gift horse in the mouth? Well, it could be this is the, he was so worried about the Jews being so religiously scrupulous about the law, they might not have shed their legalistic erroneous conceptions and they might say no we're not going to take this tainted money from gentiles could be what he was worried about third prayer request he prayed that the, that he could come to the romans and be refreshed by them and that actually happened acts 28 verses 14b through 15 and so we came to rome now the believers from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum of appius and the three taverns then paul saw them he thanked god and took courage so he was refreshed so all that fervent prayer that god that Paul asked for? In all three cases, God delivered. And then he, this sounds like a salutation, excuse me, a closing to the letter, the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. That's a standard type of closing. But no, he's got chapter 16 to go yet. So we'll take that up in the next audio. Chapter 16 mostly contains personal greetings by Paul to Roman Christians there. It's got a doxology and it. it's got some final instructions to the Romans. So we'll take that up in our next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one. 